if I look a little stiff or move a little awkwardly this morning, it's because I played 10 innings of wiffle ball at our staff picnic yesterday. Those muscles had not been used for quite a while. I'm unhappy to report. And if I look a little discouraged, it's because I was hitless in 15 at-bats. Maybe God is trying to humble me. If you look at the bulletin this week, it appears awfully pretentious. It says, under the sermon title, the leader they wanted, says Chris Martin. What's that about? At least it's not as bad as last week. Under the title, Who Can Stand in the Presence of the Lord? Outstanding challenge. There were the words, Pastor Mike Fairler. I'm glad you assumed the best, the best about us. I did have a terrific trip to East Asia. Thank you for sending me. And together, we really are affecting the world. And we'll plan a date here soon to debrief with you along those who went, who went to Taiwan. Next Sunday, we commissioned 12 of our women to uh, go to Managua. You know, as our board says out in the lobby, one of our values is local global. We want to change the world, cross the world, but we have a world right here, too, that we're trying to affect. And in that vein is our love your neighbor effort where we're asking you to show hospitality to somebody far from God. And uh, so we really encourage you to in that effort this summer. Well, we've been camping out in the Old Testament book of First Samuel. And if you have missed, this is our fourth week. If you have missed previous sessions, they're all online. Last week, Mike took us through chapter 7. And all I want to do this morning is tell the next segment of the story, chapters 8 and 9. And then we'll look at one implication from that story. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for every one of my friends here this morning. And we do come, Father, and we gather in order to connect with you to connect with one another, and to find out more about our purpose in life. And we pray that uh, if there's anything hindering us this morning, anything that would just obstruct us from giving our full heart to learning this morning, that uh, you'd help us to address that and to give ourselves eagerly to you. Father, if there's anything in me that would just hinder me from from, uh, getting out of the way so um, so that you can truly, your life can be truly manifested. Lord, help me just to do that. Um, We really want you to be honored here. and We want to grow as a body and grow as individuals. And I pray you'd help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, the Old Testament is filled with remarkable stories. It's the story of the story of Israel. It's the story of the Jews. the story of the people of God. But they are all part of one grand story, and that is the coming of Jesus. All these stories are pieced together to show the readers that Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer to our problems, and that he is the one that we have always been searching for. For Samuel, in the book before it, Judges tell the stories of Israel's search for a king. And at the conclusion of last week's message, we learned that Samuel, 
their spiritual leader, had gathered them in a place called Mizpah. After two staggering defeats, the Jews had been humbled. At Mizpah, they confessed their sin, they fasted. It was a a national revival. And their assembly aroused the attention of their enemies, the Philistines. I mean, it was like they were immediately tested after they had this uh, transforming event. And the Philistines came not ready for talking, but ready for war. Israel, for its part, was totally ill-equipped and unprepared. So Samuel offered a sacrifice. He prayed to God. And without any human agency, God won an amazing, an amazing victory for his people against the Philistines. This miracle, which they witnessed with their own eyes, was their miracle on ice. It was part of their story. But by the time we get to chapter 8 in our story, that was a long time ago. That was in the rearview mirror. Many years had gone by. And there's a lot of chaos in Israel. Internally, first, Samuel had grown old. And so he appoints his sons to take over, but they're a disappointment. And though Israel has taken possession of the land... They remain a loose confederation of tribes. There's there's no central government. There's no infrastructure. There's no standing army. They have very little by way of any military resources. Externally, that's all internally. Externally, they have the Philistines remaining on one side. And then even worse were the Ammonites on the other side of them. The Ammonites were already terrorizing border town border towns, and gouging out eyes for sport. To appreciate this passage and its lesson, we really have to crawl inside their skin. We have to try to feel their fears of these enemies living. And both these enemies, by the way, were very aggressive, very hawkish, very militarily prepared. We have to feel their fears. We have to sense this unrelenting pressure of internal chaos, no leadership. We have to feel the vulnerability that they must have felt for themselves and for their little ones. And so this desperation leads to an important meeting with representatives from all over Israel gathering at Samuel's hometown. So let's pick up now the narrative in the Bible. Look at if you're in 1 Samuel or on the screen behind me. Look at verse, chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Here's what it says. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. That's not really encouraging. You're old, dude. That's how I felt yesterday playing wiffle ball. Behold, you are old, Samuel, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now at one level, there is nothing wrong with their desire for security. And there is nothing wrong with their desire for a king. In fact, God had already told them that one day he would give them a king. But the problem here, if we look closely, is in this word. 
It is the kind or phrase, it is the kind of king they want. A king like all the nations. Look at Samuel's response, verse 6. But the question displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. How is this request a rejection of God and Samuel? Again, the clue is in the phrase, A king like all the nations. Kings in the ancient Near East represented, much more so than today, represented a concentration of power and authority. They were understood as providing ultimate security for their subjects. In the ancient Near East, the nation's favorite deity, their favorite god, fought their battles for them through the king. This was saying to God in so many words, we want to be in control of our own destiny. When the rubber meets the road, we don't trust you enough to come through for us. We need a safety net. Yes, they believed in God, but that required living by faith. And living by faith is just simply too hard, they conclude. We need somebody we can see and hear and feel and touch. God, we live in the here and now. And these are real enemies to our left and to our right. And while we might be able to empathize and to feel their fears and empathize with the plight that they are in, we must see that the demand that they made for a king was living by sight. And living by sight was a rejection of God. You know, what God had done way, way back in Mizpah was forgotten. Like an old scrapbook buried in the attic with uh, yellowed headlines and faded pictures. This was forsaking the promises that they had made to God generations ago. God was to be their only king as the ancient Near East understood the meaning of a king. God was supposed to be their ultimate security. And it was also a rejection of Samuel. Samuel was a spiritual leader first, who ministered to them, who prayed for them. But that was no longer enough. They demanded a military leader, like their neighbors. If you read on in chapter 8, you'll see that Samuel warns them. He pleads with them. Look, this is what it's going to mean To have this kind of king like the other nations. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your land. He will gather your wealth and give it to others. Take, take, and take will be the name of the game. He will essentially turn you into slaves. The very thing you fear from your enemies. But look at their response in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. There shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go away. Go every man to a city. Depart. You may have heard the old adage, Be careful what you wish for, or be careful what you pray for. And this is a case in point. In the next few weeks, we're going to see the high price that Israel pays. By even just a few chapters, they're going to be very sorry for the decision that they made. Now, chapter 9, then, introduces us to this first king. This is the leader that they wanted. Look at verses 1 and 2. Chapter 9. It says, There was a man named Benjamin... Whose name was, I'm sorry, man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish. And I'm not going to try to embarrass myself by going through all these names. Look at verse 2. It's a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, who was described as a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He's tall, dark, and handsome. He's also very unassuming, so he's quite a catch. But he emerges also from the most unlikely tribe, a tribe with a very compromised past, the tribe of Benjamin. But Saul was the man that God chose to be their king in response to their impulsive insistence. Indeed. Now, we're going to go in a lot more detail about Saul in the next few weeks. And the intimate portrayal of him given in 1 Samuel will help us appreciate who was destined to be the true king of Israel, God's best choice, which was King David. Now, before we look at the implications of this story, I want to share two more things that are important from chapter 9. We're going to skip over the details, but God sovereignly and miraculously brings Samuel and Saul together. God speaks to Samuel saying, this is the man. But there's two things we've got to look at here in chapter 9 before we go to the implication. Look at verse 15, chapter 9. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be the prince. Over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because of their cry has come to me. Their cry has reached my ears, as it says in other places. First thing we see is that Saul has one job. Saul, we've given you one job to do, and that is to defeat the Philistines. And secondly, we see something here about the heart of God. Though Israel had rejected God as their ultimate security, though they jumped ahead of God's timing in their impulsive in, uh, their impulsiveness, God's heart was still moved by their needs. Though they were not sure God could provide it, He, for His part, still worked on their behalf. Even in their rebellion, God is working. Even in their rebellion, God continues to love them. And they will suffer consequences. But mercifully, God will even use their disobedient choices to 
to bring about an ultimate good, to bring about His will. It's good news for you and me, isn't it? God is full of grace and He continues to work in our lives when we insist on our way and when we make impulsive choices. And we make those impulsive choices because walking by sight, walking by sight is always easier than walking by faith. So, this is the story of the rise of Saul. This is the story of the leader that they demanded. What is the implication for you and me? What is this? How can we translate this into our world? I've tried to identify the problem in a single sentence that impacts every single one of us. And here's the problem. There will be a natural tendency. There is a natural tendency in our lives to place ultimate trust in leaders we can see rather than a God we cannot see. This was their problem. And friends, it's often our problem. Place trust in a leader that we can see rather than a God we cannot see. It's just easier. It's just easier. It could be a political leader. It could be a spiritual leader. It could be an expert or simply an influential person in your life. Like Israel, for you and me, internal and external pressures can pile up in our lives like unpaid bills in your desk drawer. We have internal pressures like problems with our marriages, our problems within our family, our loneliness, our tight finances, our job pressures and deadlines, finding work. These internal pressures can combine with external pressures like the fear generated by terrorism or the prospect of war or fear of terminal or diseases and illnesses like cancer. This kind of stress can cause many of us to hit the rewind button. What I mean by that is that when we hit stress, some of us default to the things that brought us comfort in our stress during our pre-Christian days. All of us have some response mechanisms from stress, ways that we learned to cope before we came to Christ. For others of us, we shift the flight response into top gear when stress hits. We run away from our problems in faith that a new leader will be our savior. A different political leader, maybe a new spouse, or maybe even a different spiritual leader or a different community, spiritual community, will solve the issues that I am refusing to address. You see, these unrelenting pressures test us. They reveal who we are. They hold up to us a mirror that allows us to see inside our hearts. And it's not always pretty. The mirror doesn't ask how, who's the beautiful, most beautiful one at all. The mirror asks, who do you ultimately trust in? Where is your ultimate security? And when we place our ultimate security in leaders rather than God, they will inevitably disappoint us. Why? Because 
but we put our ultimate security in leaders, we will apply a standard of perfection that they will never be able to attain. We will be perpetually dissatisfied. This is so clear. This is so clear in the political realm, isn't it? I mean, it's so clear in the political realm when every four years, excited hopes inevitably fail. Largely because we are blind to the fact, we are so blind to the fact that our deepest problems are not political. But they are spiritual, they are social, they are related to the family. And applying political solutions to spiritual problems will always come up short. It is also clear in marriages. It's clear in marriages when spouses place demands on one another that are crushing. It also happens in the church. It's devastating to a spiritual community and to a church. And in a church, it can go two different ways. First, it can go from pastors to members. Here's how it happens. This occurs when pastors have an unhealthy need to be needed. Okay? Let me just say it again let it wash over you. This happens when pastors have an unhealthy need to be needed and they foster codependent relationships with their members. Such that their members depend more on them than they do on Jesus. Or it can happen the other way, from members to pastors. When members place their ultimate security in a man, saddle him with crushing demands, and then become disillusioned with the entire Christian faith when he disappoints. You see, knowing and loving God, we just have to face this squarely. Just say, it's difficult. Knowing and loving God requires faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, doesn't say this. It doesn't say faith is believing what you know not to be true. That's what is like a common definition of faith. That's ridiculous. No, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. In verse 6 of the same chapter, it says faith is a prerequisite for pleasing God. And so what's the solution to our problem of placing our ultimate security in leaders and men? The solution is to holding on to a God we cannot see. Holding on. Learning to hold on to a God we can't see. How do we do this? Rather than just giving you like two or three technical points, let me share a story that I think illustrates, a true story that illustrates how we learn to hold on to God, a God we can't see. It's a story about a man named Michael May, who at age 45, he'd been blind since he was three. He went through a revolutionary transplant surgery, and after 42 years of blindness, received his sight. Prior to his surgery, there were only about 40 cases of sight restored to patients. Many of these patients followed a similar pattern. At first, they experienced euphoria as light rushes into their repaired eyes. They see color and motion immediately. Everything is new and exciting. But then, as you might guess, frustration sets in. 
Learning to live with sight involves a huge learning curve. They could not perceive height, distance, depth, or three-dimensional shapes. They could not read facial expressions or even detect gender. At times, the newly sighted patients felt like they belonged neither to the world of those who see nor to the world of those who can't see. But this guy was different. He experienced the same thing as others when the bandages were first removed. The moon looked like a big street lamp. But unlike the others, he did not get discouraged. He knew that learning to see again would not involve just one magical operation, but a lifelong quest to learn, grow, take risks, and change. He peppered his wife with questions like, What's this? What's that? Is that a step? Is that a flower? Is that a painting? Let me feel it. Can I touch a plant? Let me touch a car. He rode elevators over and over again for the sheer pleasure of finding the hotel lobby after the ride. He played catch with his son, horribly missing many balls before he finally got the hang of it. All the time, he continued to struggle. Previous patients became discouraged and depressed by the long, slow transformation of the new reality of sight. But May told himself, this is part of the adventure. And as a result, every day and even every failure seemed like a new opportunity to learn, to grow, to change. What's the point of the story? When we accept Christ, when we believe in him, he restores our spiritual vision. When we accept Christ, we leave the country of the blind. You might remember that fictional place in an H.G. Wells short story where everybody's blind and the one person who can see is regarded as insane. But when we come to Christ, he restores a spiritual vision. And God's desire is that we would begin to see relationships, your career, your relationships with others. Really to see everything in your life through the prism of his kingdom. But like May, learning to walk by faith And not by sight is a long journey. It takes time to see and discern this new reality and to see it clearly. It will mean holding on to God, learning and leaning into his promises in the Bible and holding on to them. It's like when you repel. If you're going to truly repel, you've got to let go, right? I've never done it, but I've heard about it. When you repel, you've got to let go. You can't just sort of, you know, work your way down, finding a, your, your foot on the next, the next ledge. To repel is to let go completely. To abandon the previous things that brought you security and brought you comfort and to completely give yourself and abandon yourself to God. This is part of the adventure. The Bible is so full of God's promises. And at this juncture, let me just give you the application for this Sunday. As you, this week, open your Bibles and have your daily 
time of reading the scriptures and reflecting on what you read, I want to encourage you to look for promises. Find some way to record them. Keep them with you throughout the week. Reflect on them. Ask, how would my life change if I believe these promises? Promises like Isaiah 41.10, where God says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Or promises like Hebrews 13.5, where God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Or promises like Acts 1.8 that says, When we believe, God's Spirit will come upon us with power. And we will become His witnesses. What would it look like in your life to believe and to lean into, to abandon what you've given ultimate security to, and lean into the promises of God and to begin to see this new reality, to walk by faith? So there's your application for today. You know, sometimes God places us in situations where He strips us of everything and every person that we normally trust in. Other times He asks us to step way out of our comfort zone to do something we never could have imagined ourselves doing. In either case, He gives us these ironclad guarantees that we can believe in by faith. You know, seeing all of your summer vacation pictures reminds me of the beach vacations we had When our kids were younger, and while my kids loved the ocean, especially my boys, they could spend two or even three hours uninterrupted in the ocean, swimming, riding waves, boogie boarding, all of it. And I used to love to watch them, such a joy to watch them. But to get to that place of a comfort zone at 11 or 12 years old, they had to grip onto my hand and hold it fiercely when they were three and four. And that ocean to them just looked like this big, vast, mysterious body of water. And just imagine how uh, big and scary and how loud the ocean is with its waves for a three-year-old. But they knew me, that I would not hurt them. And they hung on to me as we took more and more steps out into it. And they fiercely hung on to me as I lifted them up as that first menacing wave fell Harmlessly beneath them. In the same way, this is how God develops your faith. He will put you in situations where you must desperately hold on to Him and then see how He comes through for you. Now keep in mind, His plan will not always be our plan, but He will come through. He will keep His promises. And as He does, We see his heart. Your faith grows like a muscle. It develops. And then we can believe him for more and more and more in our lives. And this is so freshly made real to me. So freshly made real to me on my recent trip to East Asia. I was asked to lead some spiritual retreats in a few churches. In places I'd never been for people I had never met. For needs I had never felt in situations I did not fully understand. And that was on top of obvious language and cultural barriers. And I could not use outlines or PowerPoints or things I normally rely on. How could I seriously make a difference? Frankly, I just was a little terrified at the prospects. And then on top of that, the weeks leading up to my leaving were filled with all these out-of-the-ordinary events that kept me from preparing for these 
times of message giving and teaching. Some were complex ministry issues demanding answers. Others were simple things like my car getting hit in the parking lot with, a week, with less than a week to go before leaving. My anxiety was building with each day as I grew closer to my leaving and was completely unprepared. Finally, with just a few days left, I snuck down to a coffee shop downtown to try to figure out what I was going to do. Sitting down with a cup of coffee by the window, I skipped right over my normal daily Bible reading to attack how am I going to approach this. But my feelings of anxiety continued to grow and prevented me from even being able to concentrate. Frankly, my anxiety had been so strong the last couple of days and so persistent, I was beginning to worry about my health and, uh, and just getting there. Finding in desperation, I stopped. And I told the Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm not trusting you. And I put down everything with my preparation and spent the next 90 minutes simply talking and worshiping and reading the scriptures, not for the retreat, but reading the scriptures for myself. I didn't do that out loud, by the way, just, just in case you're worried about that. It's, it was writing my prayers in my journal. And it was an amazing moment. In that space, in a coffee shop, surrounded by others, but feeling like I'm completely alone, God, the Father, came to me. And he visited me. And he spoke. And he brought me into his presence. And he quieted my heart. And he assured me that everything was going to be all right. There's a peace that flooded into my heart that I hadn't tasted for quite a while. And it was beyond description. I turned back to my preparation then, and in 90 minutes, in 90 minutes, I had a general plan of what to do. What I assumed would take hours took an hour and a half. And as it turned out, having a very fluid plan was exactly what was needed. In each place I visited, I spent the first sessions of my retreat not talking, not teaching, but asking questions and listening. In listening first, I could begin to assess not only their needs, but also feel their needs. I began to connect spiritually and emotionally beyond cultural and language barriers. And then I could adapt my content to what they actually needed. Had I spent hours in planning, I fear I may have been too emotionally invested in my plan to make the necessary to make the on-the-spot adjustments. In the end, it met needs. It connected. The churches were built up. God was present. And it was a powerful encouragement to leaders and churches that are going through some unbelievable external pressures in their story right now. I look back on the anxiety leading up to it, and I simultaneously laugh because God delivered me and cry because I wonder, God, why couldn't I trust you? Why couldn't I believe you? You promised to come through for me, and you did. But like you, friends, my faith still has got a lot of flab to it. It's a lot of flabby spots. And my faith, too, like yours, is being developed by God. Living by sight in this story, living by sight would say there is no way that I could have anything to offer people from a different culture, 
with a different language and with different pressures than mine. Living by faith says there is nothing impossible with God. And that the power of God transcends language and culture. And the body of Christ all over the world is tied together by the word of God and by the spirit of God. That's how it would look to see it through the prism of the kingdom. So in the end, to try to wrap this all up. Been admonishing you, and we've, we've said we face squarely the fact it's hard to live by faith. It's easier to live by sight. It's easier to put our trust in leaders we can see than a God we cannot see. So, in the end, where do we get the motivation to live this way on an everyday basis? You know, human leaders are going to disappoint you, husbands and wives will disappoint. Moms and dads will disappoint. Parents and teachers will disappoint. And yes, pastors and spiritual leaders will disappoint. But Jesus is the leader that we have spent, you have spent your life searching for. Only he can provide the ultimate security that your heart aches for. Though his plan will differ from ours, he will never disappoint. And you can place on him your expectations for guidance, for fulfillment, and for perfect love. And he will not be crushed by them. The motivation for living by faith is Jesus himself. In order to become like us as a human being, Jesus emptied all of his divine advantages. He shred all of his divine prerogatives to become like us. Thus, he too had to learn to live by faith in the goodness and the promises of his Father. He had to entrust himself, it says in 1 Peter 2, to his Father. He could not die for us unless he had lived by faith. Living by faith allowed him to die for your sins. He could not have resurrected from the dead unless he lived by faith. Living by faith allowed him to resurrect for your justification. He could not have ascended to heaven had he first not come to earth. Living by faith allowed him to ascend to heaven and thus forever become your priest. Living to make atonement for your sins once and for all. And living on an everyday basis to intercede for you before the Father as your perfect priest. Because of him, with him, through him, you and me, we too can learn to live by faith and hold on to a God that we cannot see. Pray with me. Father, um, you know every conflict that my friends are experiencing, every internal struggle every external fear that they're going through. Father, you know the default where it's set in their hearts, the places that they go for comfort, 
Some, Lord, go to relationships. Some go to a, a, a leader. Father, some go to alcohol or to drugs. Some go to entertainment, Lord. The things and the places where we used to go to find consolation, to find relief from our stress. Father, we confess this morning, we confess to you that we have often put our ultimate security in things, in people. Help us to be restored again today to remember that only you can take the crushing demands of all that we are. Only you can absorb all those expectations. Help us to give them fully to you. Help us to not look for that little toehold on the mountain, but to trust, to trust and to repel, to step out and to believe, to hold on to your promises like never before. Father, I pray that my friends here would do things that they never imagined doing because they're learning to walk by faith. I pray that in the years to come, they look back and say, I never could have envisioned myself doing that. But I learned. I had new sight. It wasn't easy, but it came as a process to see clearly and to see through the eyes of the kingdom. Father, lead us now as we give to you of our resources, as we pray, as we sing. Might we once again throw ourselves completely into your hands. A God we can't see, but living by faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.